This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... One-to-one scenarios you should write. The Lano Del Rio Commune. Screwball Comedy 101. And the Takanushi Documents. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. Before we get to the meat and uh, drink carefully hoarded, uh, in our uh, pantries uh, of this episode, we'd like to open with a preamble hut. Uh, by now, I suspect those of us who did not go to medical school, disappointing various members of the family, are saying, what can we do? How can we help? And obviously, there's lots of way- things you can do. You can tip the delivery person really well if you can afford it. Be nice to people at the store because their lives are much worse than they ever were. And also... If you have a friendly local game store, they may be in a jurisdiction that has been closed down by the government to quarantine and prevent the spread of disease. So they're not bringing in any money. So if you go to your favorite friendly local game store website or at them on Facebook or however you contact your friendly local game store, they will be happy as anything to sell you a gift certificate or a gift card if they even have card technology there that will let you spend your gaming budget for the month now and then get your games later it's just like you pre-ordered and if you're uh, casting around saying but ken i don't have a friendly local game store may i suggest adventure game store in Davie, florida which saves my life every january uh contact brian at adventure game store at gmail.com he will happily set you up with a gift certificate and yes he has excellent mail order policies so obviously if you're saving your nickels trying to buy that last bottle of bourbon at the liquor store before they close don't don't let a, a, a gaming store get in the way of that but if you got a couple of extra bucks and you normally spend it on games Still spend it on games, just in the future. Robin? Yes, absolutely. There's going to be a lot of uh, infrastructure that's going to need to recover when uh, this is all over. And uh, uh, the infrastructure of our hobby is certainly uh, among them. And it will vary uh, greatly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction how much help small businesses get. So uh, if you can... Uh, afford to uh, move around your entertainment box, the ones that you might have spent going out and uh, seeing movies and attending concerts and doing other things in groups of more than two. (laughs) Uh, If if you can do it, see what you can do to keep the uh, infrastructure of our hobby alive as well. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos... And the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the plush carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we see that there's only two chairs. Robin, are we not expecting a lot of people in the gaming hut? Oh, right. Yeah. Under quarantine. I forgot. But fortunately, thank goodness, Robin. Thank goodness. uh, A a far-sighted, public-spirited, civic-minded and uh, darn good looking, I'd say, on average, uh, game publishing company. Uh, has released a game product that is for one player and one GM. And I believe, Robin, they may have hired one of the top designers to design Gumshoe 1-to-1. 
Uh, do you know anything about that? I, I do, as a matter of fact. So uh, Gumshoe Wonder One is currently available in two different books, both of which include the core rules, uh, both of which are available in PDF, so you can get them from the Pelgrane store. And you kind of need a, Pel- uh, a PDF for this because you're going to be serving up cards, uh, which you will uh, cut out uh, either uh, virtually or physically on printed pieces of paper that you print out on your printer. So I don't like to be in the position of saying there's a horrible catastrophe and therefore you should buy our product. Um, but uh, the reason I bring this up, in fact, is that uh, Gumshoe One to One is available through the Creative Commons license uh, that our Kickstarter backers for Hill Folk and then the Yellow King role-playing game purchased enough of my time for me to uh, create <laughs> a, a, a reference document for all of those games. And they're all together in one document, so it takes a little bit of parsing, although the one-to-one stuff is separately within that uh, that document. Um, so uh, we uh, at Pelgrane are working on getting more there will be uh, a link in the show notes is what he's trying to say. Ken, there are no show notes. There are no show notes. <laughs> Where, how, many, how many times have I told you there are no show notes? Look, go to Pelgrane and search for Gumshoe SRD. Um, right. So from that, uh, you can uh, augment our upcoming efforts to, to bring out some more cool uh, one-to-one stuff as PDF products to get it into people's hands now that uh, we are trapped in small groups in our uh, homes and apartments. Um, and is the ideal way to... Uh, introduce your partner, either roommate or spouse or romantic partner, whatever that partnership is, the other yes. uh, person you, you inhabit uh, your life with. The, the person who has been joined together by um, uh, by the acts of viruses and governments around the world. Uh, yes, um, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so I want to see more of these out there. And since there's a Creative Commons license, I thought that we would encourage people to do that by uh, doing a segment where we spitball ideas for you, the enterprising listener, to take and turn into uh, products that you could uh, sell on uh, drive-through RPG or, or wherever fine PDFs are, are sold, or in fact just uh, give away if you're feeling magnanimous. Yeah. And Robin, these ideas are are themselves, I guess, Creative Commons, right? We we don't. Yes. We're giving them to you, the listeners. Yes. Not only are they uh, available uh, to you, but we urge you to use them. Yes. So, so Ken, if you. Uh, had the time to sit down and uh, come up with a, a, a one-to-one uh, scenario. So basically the idea is you can do anything that is structured like a mystery uh, with mm-hmm. one-to-one Re- requires a little bit of adaptation of the rules and the skills, depending on what uh, genre you decide to uh, emulate. Uh, there's one coming up from Pelgrane that I wish I could spoil because it's so cool, but I'm not going to because it hasn't been announced yet. Um, so w- what comes to your mind, Ken, as, as things that, uh, you would like to see other people do with uh, one-to-one. Well, I mean, obviously, like you, you already said, detective, and we have a hard-boiled detective in uh, Cthulhu Confidential. Uh, we have three hard-boiled detectives of various degrees of hardness and boilery. Um, but uh, the other sort of um, detective stories, uh, you know, cops and whatnot, those are all pretty obvious. I don't think we need to go through those. But I'm thinking that one of the classic single-person narratives in uh, my branch of the universe is the magical initiation where you have a, a querent, a path worker. Maybe they're a wizard. Maybe they're just a guy who winds up on a Greek Island with a mysterious millionaire, whatever it is. Uh, and they set themselves on the path unwillingly or unwittingly, or even knowingly of trying to become uh, magically illuminated and initiated. And that is a single person story with a lot of very strange and bizarre things that happen usually. And the mystery is, is magic real? Am I just deluding myself? Or if you're in a fantasy universe, it's how does magic work and will I be worthy? So it's not a mystery in the sense you're trying to uncover the answer to, you know, a murder. You're trying to uncover the answer either to the universe or the answer to is the universe having one on? Is the universe messing with me? What's going on here? And that's, uh, that's a, that's a, a genre that you see in, in John Fowles' The Magus. You see it in, uh, Promethea to an extent. You see it in a lot of variant medias in which, uh, the, the, the occult initiate, uh, goes forth and discovers stuff. Um, and you can, um, depending on where you come to that, uh, fictionally, you could put any kind of flavor into it. You could make it a pure fantasy story, your sort of wizard of earthsea type thing, or you could, uh, do it as a, a modern day urban fantasy where, 
someone invites the uh, the hero uh, into a secret uh, uh, society, maybe the Golden Dawn, maybe another secret society, whatever you'd like. And within it, oh, that guy is actually doing it for real. He's not just wearing an owl costume to try and get laid. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, I guess it depends on... On, on the company you keep, whether the owl costume uh, proves alluring or not, it's it's called a filter, Robin. You 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 know you you select strongly enough, and it turns out that works. You just have to select. Uh, that sounds uh, eerily like uh, experience talking. Um, so, uh, <laughs> oh the, God, no! Uh, the owl costume never never pulled. It never worked. <laughs> I'm going to back up a, a bit, and uh, one way to find out what. Uh, you might want to create is to ask the person that you're uh, in the apartment with and has uh, volunteered to playtest it with you uh, what is interesting to them, especially if you have someone who is uh, role-playing curious but hasn't uh, run that much stuff. Uh, I think it is very helpful, especially for beginning players, to have a genre touchstone to grab onto. So if you have someone who uh, is steeped in the occult and, and knows they're, they're John Fowl, uh, that would be a, a great uh, idea. But you may want to go for uh, something more simple and obvious, uh, like, you know, just ask the person who's your favorite detective from mystery novels or uh, what mystery procedural shows uh, do you watch? And so uh, you might want to do something that's actually kind of uh, uh, mainstreamy. Um, some of one of the um, interesting questions is that there are uh, the most common form of the mystery now is the TV procedural. Those are very often kind of ensemble shows uh, in which, you know, bones, for example, it's a cop and four or five different forensic scientists, depending on, you know, what point in the show you're at, uh, or, you know, law and order famously is cops and lawyers. Uh, but you, uh, you might want to say just what is your, what's your favorite mystery book or show and, and do that, uh, with the serial numbers filed off, of course, if you mm -hmm. want to sell it, because, uh, you know, the, uh, Paramount's lawyers are working from home and, uh, probably anxious for things to do. So you don't want to get uh, sued, but, you could certainly look at kind of what those obvious things are. The, the Franny Fisher um, mysteries. I think if you did a, uh, a twenties progressive woman with uh, great clothes, uh, solving mysteries uh, that uh, I think would be eagerly awaited. You could go a little farther afield and look at uh, the sort of uh, classic uh, for a solo TV detective. There's the classic irascible jerk who solves mysteries format. And you can go sideways into, uh, you could do a, a version of House, for example. You can have yep, someone medical who mysteries. Med medical mysteries, or uh, there's a lot of uh, psychological profiler ones, and some of them have uh, more of a sort of a solo aspect uh, to them as well. Another thing you see a lot uh, these days is take a historical figure and make them a detective. So uh, there's a, a new Freud show that is just uh, dropped on Netflix in which uh, Freud is... <laughs> is solving mysteries in his spare time while developing psychoanalysis. It, it turns think, out it was their mother. It's yes. always their mother. That's, Spoiler, that's who did it, it every it was, time. It, it was the cigar that did it. Right. No, it was the mom smoking a cigar, filling you with crazy uh, mis misplaced rage, causing the murder. Yeah, Freud solving mysteries. Uh, there's there's uh, tons of them. Uh, there's a, uh, I think there's a novel series in which Shane Austin solves mysteries. I'm, I'm sure there's uh, any number of of beloved character Samuel Johnson has a mystery series. So if you have a beloved historical character, or as you, uh, Robin, you suggest, um, uh, if you're, if you're, uh, quarantine partner, your, your, your current, uh, enamorata or roommate has a, a favorite historical character, casting them as the detective is may already have been done. And failing that is probably pretty easy because people who are interesting enough to be someone's favorite character are usually surrounded by, you know, excitement which usually means crime and murder. I mean, I guess if Alexander the Great is solving mysteries, it's like, oh, I did it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Who, who killed those yeah. 40,000 uh, victims? Oh. Who got drunk and threw a spirit that, oh, that that was me. Yeah, Sorry. That was, well. yeah. Yeah. So, it, 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 like, every every case is, is Poirot uh, in the curtain. Oh, uh, you can take a, a, a sideways <laughs> step uh, from that concept and do something that's also been done a lot, which is your... Uh, fictional or mythological character is now solving crimes. So uh, the Lucifer show, uh, which is a, a 
classic weird example of uh, pop culture fusion from one medium to the other. It's like, let's take Neil Gaiman's Lucifer and make him a detective. Oh, okay, sure. There was a Frankenstein show that was uh, in development, or Frankenstein was solving mysteries. Yep, yep. This mystery solved by Frankenstein's monster, not Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> so you could... Give so, credit! Yeah, you could do that. And obviously, and also... Oh, you're not going to like are, this one, Frankenstein. The victim right. was burned. No! <laughs> no. Um, you can go back in time uh, to use actual detective characters who are in the public domain. So uh, one of the uh, things classically why you don't do a Sherlock Holmes mystery is, uh, well, up until a while ago, the, the estate was still litigious, but now they've been slapped down. And uh, the other reason is that, uh, well, Holmes is a know-it-all. He knows everything. Well, you're the one character in a one-to-one. It's, yeah. it's okay to be the one who knows everything. And so uh, it, that's certainly something that would have a lot of name recognition right away. Or Karnacki, the ghost finder, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to go a little more uh, genre-like. And that's, uh, I think, would be a fun classic thing. And I guess before you write your scenario, you could uh, roll a die and decide whether it's uh, a ghost or not a ghost. Because Karnacki has like a 50-50 ghost to, to hoax uh, ratio. Or you could even write the scenario so that the GM decides at some point. Uh, whether it's a it's a ghost or a hoax, and it has two different possible uh, outcomes, and you can decide at various points uh, whether to do that. Uh, outside the uh, detectiving genre, there's the sort of solo, wandering, exploring hero, and the mystery in those cases is how do I get a big fat diamond or emerald or or something, or it might be you know how do I how do I get away from uh, these bad guys and, and get back to civilization. And so, uh, you might be, uh, doing sort of a Rudyard Kipling's Kim type story, which it would be a spy precursor sort of thing to the Knights Black Agent solo ops. Or you might just be doing, you're a English knight or a Chinese nobleman who has been sent out into the wildy woods because you've been bad and you have to, uh, find a big enough treasure to let you get back to court. Uh, in, in some senses, that's what the conquistadors were up to. Uh, they did not usually travel solo, but you could have like a lone conquistador who's out, uh, looking for El Dorado or whatever. And maybe the mystery is what is really El Dorado? Or maybe the mystery is, is there something out there that, um, uh, is, is dangerous and terrible and you need to get back to New Spain and, and warn people about it. So the sort of explorer, uh, genre that Star Trek, uh, becomes, which caused Ashen Stars to be, be a big mystery in space type, uh, game. Turn that back on its head, go back to Earth, and you can set it again in whatever historical period your, your audience likes, or, um, uh, make it a historical mystery that's always, uh, interested you. So it's like, where was Camelot? So maybe your hero is a, is a 1920s archaeologist, a, a quick talking archaeologist dame, and she's gonna go find Camelot. And that's how you can do it. And then uh, she can solve other archaeological mysteries if if if, uh, if you uh, take to her. I would like to see Detective D uh, done as the uh, as a one to one. That would be a lot of fun. So you mm-hmm. can basically look at your other uh, uh, genres. And uh, I sort of like the Troy Hawk Detective D better than the than the Van Gulick one. But pick the one you like. Another um, option would be uh, to do a a courtroom drama where you know. That someone who's been charged uh, with a, a capital offense is innocent and your uh, investigation is to find the evidence you need in order to clear them. And then at the end, there's the big courtroom uh, revelation where the uh, the facts, uh, uh, perhaps uh, unlike reality, uh, convince the uh, the court system to uh, to free the uh, person. And, uh, and you can sort of have a, a social drama aspect to that as well. And, and as you point out, there are a lot of things that seem to not be uh, mysteries, but uh, actually are. So you can uh, take pretty well any uh, genre you can think of and find a way to have a character who is uh, moving from scene to scene, talking to people, uh, figuring out what, what the situation is, encountering danger along the way. So, uh, you know, you could have the you could be a, a pirate hunter or you could or be a the, pirate or a pirate or uh, you could be the the witch finder finder who's trying to track down the <laughs> the corrupt uh, uh, prove that the corrupt witch finder is uh, uh, targeting people in order to steal their property. So the possible breadth of 
exploration for one-to-one is vast and uh, has been largely untouched. So I hope uh, people uh, find inspiration. Uh, and you can steal any specific one of these examples. Yeah. D- don't, don't be shy about using one of the ones that we've used. And be sure to let us know if you uh, start working on something. And uh, if you uh, get it into a playable form for others, we'll be sure to uh, boost it on our social medias. Yeah, we will. Yep. And so on, on that note... Uh, I think it's time for us to uh, solve another mystery, which is what hut is on the other side of this exciting commercial message. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The wind whistling through the ruins of a a stone compound in the desert tell us that we are in the History Hut. And this time around, we are in the History Hut because beloved Patreon backer Martin Runkvist asks the following. I'd like to hear more about the utopian socialist commune that lived at Llano del Rio in California in 1914-18. My interest was sparked by the fine Frank Black song of the same name, which references Aldous Huxley. Esperanto and Mescaline. Was there perhaps a secret purpose to this brief utopian experiment? And when I pick the topics, especially those suggested by our beloved backers, I do not research them ahead of time. And uh, Ken, we're going to have to do some making up because uh, this is uh, one of those topics that gets uh, more boring the more research you do. (laughs) I mean, I guess you could say that as your argument that Rosicrucianism is the most boring kind of occultism, uh, socialism is the most boring kind of conspiracy. But uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's not even a conspiracy. It's just a co-op. Yeah. But that's why that's a boring conspiracy, Robin. Yes. If you're, if, yeah. if you're conspiring to grow lentils, that is boring. Right. I'm, so I'm not wrong. Fun part of the uh, reference points that are mentioned in, in the Frank Black song about Aldous Huxley and Mescaline, we have already covered. Yes. Uh, so uh, episode 330, we do a, a Ken's Time Machine segment about uh, trying to uh, use Huxley's uh, experiments in Mescaline and make those the basis of the drug culture instead of Timothy Leary's LSD experiments. So you might want to zip back and, uh, and check that out for all of your exciting uh, Huxley information. And Huxley's connection to uh, Lana Del Rio is that he lived there 
a generation later. He was there in yeah. the late 40s. Uh, he moved there uh, hoping that the sunlight would uh, remedy his failing eyesight. And the uh, the ruins of this commune were already ruins at that time. So he sort yeah. of, his connection to this story is uh, pretty tenuous. And he uh, lived there from 43 for a couple of years and then uh, ragweed uh, drove him out. Yeah. So he's he's kind of a, a footnote uh, in this story. So the actual story, Ken, starts with a, a failed Los Angeles mayoral candidate named Job Harriman. Yeah. And uh, the best part about Job Harriman is in the Los Angeles mayoral election of 1911, he ran for mayor and got very, very close to winning and was writing his reputation as a crusading reform socialist until he was screwed over by Clarence Darrow. And this is possibly the best story in this, as you say. Clarence Darrow, he was the representative of two guys who were uh, accused of blowing up the Los Angeles Times building, bombing it with dynamite. And uh, they were, you know, all the unions were like, and the communists and the socialists were all like, these guys are being railroaded by big newspaper. Uh, we're going to get a defense. And uh, the, uh, Job Harriman uh, was their was their lawyer. And then they said, well, we need a bigger name. So they brought in Clarence Darrow and Clarence Darrow talked to these guys, realized immediately that they were guilty as sin and still collected what in our money would be $10 million from union funds. People, you know, saving their nickels from the production line to send to Clarence Darrow so that he could mount a big, loud defense. And basically he was going to purely do it in the court of public opinion. And um, Clarence Darrow's turns this into a giant cause celeb and it becomes a national thing. And they even make a movie about it. Uh, and it's, it's a giant story all over the country. And then of course the prosecutor does the minimal due diligence necessary to absolutely seal the deal. And um, uh, Darrow gets wind of it because everyone's got spies in the other camp. And so he convinces them to plead guilty in an attempt to sort of, uh, not get the chair, basically. And, and they do. And they plead guilty right after uh, Job Harriman has won the primary walking away. And so it's just down to him and the guy who would eventually win. Ha Hamilton, I think, is the name of the guy. And so they they confess in open court. The, the prosecutor makes them do it. They blow Job Harriman's reputation out of the water because now, oh, he's not the defender of the innocent. He's the defender of dynamiters. And so he gets hammered, just blown uh, to pieces, landslide defeat in the mayoral election and says, well, uh, he tries one more time and doesn't even, you know, get into the top three uh, and says, well, electoral politics will not secure socialism in this country. Yes. How about if we built a commune? I'll bet that would secure socialism. Everyone will have to listen to me then. And right. uh, to go to continue to go off on tangents uh, that are interesting, <laughs> that period in L.A. is really wild because uh, dynamite was just a regular extension of marketing that yeah. uh, it was uh, very common in, in the teens. If you had a business dispute uh, with a competitor, uh, you blew up their place. Various uh, movie theaters, uh, rival chains blew up each other's movie theaters, newsstands. The blowing up of the Times building was not an anomaly, but rather a part of uh, sort of standard practice in LA at the time. So it's a uh, a, a crazy period in in, uh, in history that uh, it's always been a wild place uh, right from the get-go. And, and the teens were uh, certainly a, a high point of wildness. But Job uh, leaves all that behind and heads to uh, Lano del Rio, which is uh, on the southern edge of the Mojave Desert. And he uh, gathers together a group of fellow earnest uh, folk and uh, they toil away for a while. But it turns out that it's difficult to sustain an economy on the edge of a desert. Yes. And in fairness, the county commissioners, uh, they, they got the, the territory for probably too much money. It was a fraction of the cover value, but it was still because it came with the alleged water rights to a creek. And so they thought, well, we'll just extend the creek and use irrigation and, and make the desert bloom. And sure enough, they do. But uh, the other farmers who were also using water from that creek are like, uh, we didn't sell our water rights. What's going on? And so everyone goes to the county commissioner, uh, Lano Del Rio, uh, petitions to be allowed to build a dam at the top of the creek and do a catchment. And the county commissioner, you know, regardless of the merits of the case, is not going to let a bunch of socialists build a dam. That seems like crazy people talk. And so he says, no, nothing doing. You're not getting to build a dam. What And what that means basically is 
they're not, they don't have the water rights. And that means that they can't make a go of it. And yes, the guy, in true socialist fashion, all of the water was theirs to do what they pleased with. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Never mind their neighbors. And, uh, the, uh, uh, the guy who was the banker who set it up, who was a, uh, a socialist banker, uh, named Gentry Purvance McCorkle, which as far as I'm concerned, uh, you, you got a name like Gentry Purvance McCorkle. People just don't have names anymore, Ken. I no, don't know they happened. don't. It's, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and Becker, Gentry, uh, Steve McCorkle. Sorry. You just don't make it. But, um, anyway, Gentry Purvance McCorkle, being a socialist and a banker, um, says, well, as long as it's communal property, it might as well be my communal property and starts buying up pieces of the property, uh, when they have to, sell it for to, to make a couple of nickels or they don't pay the taxes on it. And since it was his job to pay the taxes, we can argue back and forth as to exactly how that happened. But bit by bit, the Lano del Rio, the actual reins of, of, of uh, land ownership get concentrated in Gentry Purvance McCorkle's no doubt fat pink hands. Are, are um, you saying that the banker part went out over the socialist part? I'm saying that it may have been a, a confluence of interests that when you are a millionaire socialist, you tend maybe not to be thinking quite as much of everybody. There, there was also, of course, because it was a commune, there was a bunch of people who thought this commune is stupid. We should be running the commune. Uh, there was a, which is the story of America. There was a, um, uh, there, there was a, a directorial board that was supposed to make all the decisions, the assembly of every stockholder, because of course their commune uh, was a, a legally a corporation. They sold stock in it. Everyone owned uh, shares of stock and you had to buy in at $2,000, which was not cheap in Down with the corporations, except our corporation, except our corporation, which is a socialist corporation yes. and better than other corporations. And so the stockholders became angry that they were never getting paid any dividends and were still working like dogs in the Mojave desert. And, uh, uh, therefore, uh, either out of malice or out of incompetence refused to vote to allow the alfalfa to be harvested. Uh, and thus they had no crop in 1917. And so it, or it could have been malicious incompetence. I'm not, right. I'm not the judge here. Yeah, which so metaphor harvest? The, the, the land was being uh, gobbled up by McCorkle. There was no cr uh, crop sales. Also, America got into World War One, and suddenly the $4 a day wage, in big air quotes, that you were getting paid, in big air quotes, to live in Llano del Rio could be beaten by people who could still live in Los Angeles and not grow alfalfa in the Mojave Desert uh, because you're doing war work. And so the uh, supply of recruits, which had been needed to keep it at its peak, which I think was between 1,100 and 1,500 people, depending on whether you're listening to Harriman or someone else, Harriman, uh, realizes this is a mugs game, moves the colony to Louisiana to a colony called New Lano, uh, which is still a little town in Louisiana you can go to and, and ask about and they will stare at you. But he basically upstakes and leaves in 1918, 1919 and goes to Louisiana and the colony, because McCorkle isn't dumb enough to try and grow alfalfa on his desert land, immediately falls apart. All the farmers who hated the socialists anyway go and steal all the buildings. And, uh, either they, uh, put them on their own land or they just use the stones to build fences with. Uh, and so by the time, uh, Aldous Huxley is there in 1943, it's already a set of picturesque ruins. And that is the story of Los Angeles socialism up until Warren Beatty. Okay. So the Esperanto part, uh, speaking of excitement. <laughs> yes, kids. Um, the Esperanto part uh, actually happened in New Lano, uh, Louisiana. There was a Esperanto guru, I guess, an authority. Uh, and he was from, I think, Worcester, Massachusetts or something like that. Maybe it was Alexandria, Virginia. It was some suburb somewhere in the Northeast. But he either moved to the Lano colony or had disciples who moved to the Lano colony and started an Esperanto league there. And that was in the new Lano colony, not in the Los Angeles Lano colony. So the Esperanto guys are uh, apparently mostly in new Lano, Louisiana, not in uh, the original one, even further from uh, Aldous Huxley and Mescaline. But uh, in a way, um, since that colony actually lasted until about 1938, it was the successful one because it's easier to grow things in Louisiana than the Mojave Desert, apparently. So this brings us to uh, how to make this a, a part of an exciting mystery. And it turns out, which is to say somebody on a backpacker website says so, that there are <laughs> shadowy ghosts in the nearby uh, Angeles National Forest. So we uh, have to assume, therefore, that the 
uh, people of uh, Lano del Rio offended the shadowy ghosts in some way. Shadowy ghosts known to be Republican are not going to be into this. They were red baiting shadowy ghosts. And so they, they drove them out and the uh, shadowy ghosts uh, must have some reason to uh, resent the colony. I, I think probably other than just, ideology because they don't really care about the water rights either being shadowy ghosts so the the question is you know who uh what fictional character uh was a member of the commune and had uh, some other reason to uh commit terrible murders there for uh creating the shadowy ghosts uh that then drove out the uh the good members of the commune and are the shadowy ghosts uh, migrating to uh, New Lano? And this is where your characters come in and they're solving the mystery and finding it's basically a murder mystery in a commune because that suddenly becomes a lot of fun uh, in that, A, the players are going to think, commune, there must be uh, rituals at night and they must be dancing around wearing goat heads. And of course, they're not. They're just arguing over the alfalfa crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still plenty of people who have beefs with other people in the way that in a murder mystery people do. And uh, we can posit all sorts of uh, uh, hanky panky between uh, commune members. And uh, they might be uh, resentful of the, uh, the banker who's buying stuff up or the banker might be, uh, I don't want to say that he's a land developer who was uh, wearing a shadowy ghost costume to drive people away because uh, <laughs> that would, because it just devalued his property. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But there's got to be uh, there's got to be some sinister thing that is not the obvious sinister thing that you would have a commune up to that would uh, turn this into a thing, or it could be you know some other previous settlement, you know decades earlier uh, that was responsible for the massacre that created the shadowy ghosts, and you know if you're a shadowy ghost, you don't distinguish the next group of people to come and set up shop in this area. They must be the same people, and you. Well, uh, it was a failed prohibitionist commune before it was a failed socialist commune. The reason that they uh, had the land available at all is a, a temperance settlement that tried to get away from demon alcohol, built their commune there, and it fell apart, one assumes, because how can you possibly do that? Uh, although I, I will point out that the Lano del Rio commune did not have alcohol on the premises either. That was illegal, um, as, as were drugs. As were non-white people. Yes, so. they, they made it clear that they were not racist. They just uh, thought that it was trouble if people of different races mixed together. Right. But it was not out of a spirit of racism. Right. It was out of a spirit no. of racial separation. Yeah. Yeah. So. Glad you cleared that up. Glad. Uh, socialist, thanks, uh, Leno Good job, Job Harriman. You jerk. So there's a previous commune there that has already fallen apart. They build their commune. It falls apart. So the shadowy ghosts might just hate communes. It might not even be a, a specific thing that they have a beef with the socialists. There might be something in that creek. There might be a, an angry naiad who doesn't like being um, frittered away on the desert at Big Rock Creek. Um, the Big Rock Naiad might be behind yes. it. As previously established, naiads are generally peevish. Yeah, they are. They're, because you might um, build a dam that they see a commune coming. They they know what the, the, they the know writing on the stone wall. I mean, not every county commissioner is pro-naiad, regardless of the outcome of, of the specific dam uh, proposal in 1916. The other possibility, and this is the sort of thing that is sadly... No one famous was at this commune. It's not one of those cool communes that has famous people at it. The closest thing to a famous person that was at this commune, besides Huxley 20 years later, was an architect named uh, Gregory Ain. And Gregory Ain is a modernist designer. He built a lot of uh, buildings in Silver Lake. So if you've ever been in Silver Lake and you've noticed some weird mid-century modern stuff, he probably built it. There's... There's no shadow of scandal besides being a communist that attaches to Gregory Ain, so you can't really tie him into Marxism uh, uh, magic or anything. But uh, you could have a different architect, an Ivo Shandor sort, who is building crazy buildings with strange geometries in them. And when you look into it, it's like, oh, he was raised on that commune and uh, might have been, you know, learned something from the naiads or might have been um, uh, uh, talking to the shadowy uh, uh, desert ghosts. And so rather than having been inculcated in mystic geometry by the commune's Rosicrucian tenets, it might have just been that he was out there in the desert with nothing to do. And he was a bright kid and got uh, suborned by spirits. Not the regular kind of spirits. Uh, well, on that note, I, th- I think that we've uh, made this story just as interesting as we possibly can <laughs> yeah. and uh, must therefore 
uh, see what waits on the other side of this crucial commercial message. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Preserve the fragile utopia that is this podcast by joining such Patreon backers as... Derek McMullen. Jacob Borsma. Mike Merles. Rich Renallo. And Ryan Mannix. The whir of the projector, the sight of the cigarette smoke curling up in the beam, the feel of whatever that is under our feet, let's not investigate it, lead us to the center seats right behind the the, the big balcony rail of the cinema hut, where we're going to look out and do another one of our very popular uh, 101 segments. And today, Robin, I see... Uh, fast-talking dames and slightly out-of-their-element guys. I see black and white. I see um, uh, the occasional stocking being revealed. Uh, perhaps, Robin, we are in a world of screwball comedy. What do you think? Um, yeah, I thought, uh, uh, I don't know about you, Ken, but I'm finding uh, solace in uh, cinema. My cinema hut, of course, is uh, my home theater in my apartment. Right, um, yeah. And uh, I thought uh, it would be... Uh, time to uh, talk about comedy a bit. And screwball comedy is interesting uh, in that it is like film noir. It is a subgenre that is difficult to define. And it's just as interesting to talk about what it is that makes a screwball comedy. Uh, but it's also very specific to its time and place that there's, aside from What's Up Doc by Peter Bogdanovich, mm -hmm. there's really no neo screwball comedy. There have been attempts over the years to kind of bring it back, but those generally tend to just hit the wrong note and fail. Uh, the universally acknowledged worst film of the Coen brothers is an attempt to do a screwball comedy and it just doesn't work out of its era. And so there's something about the worst film that uh, isn't the lady killers. That's a whole other segment. Right. I actually kind of like the lady killers. Well, I, I kind of like bits of intolerable cruelty. So there, Oh, you're right. We're both wrong. It's intolerable cruelty. Yeah. And uh, now that we've established that, we can move on to, oh, wait, uh, Screwball Comedies 101. Right. So the <laughs> corpus of Screwball Comedies is is pretty uh, small. And the elements that they usually have, they're romantic comedies, always. Uh, they very often, but not always, have the female lead uh, loosening up the uptight a male lead, or sometimes the uh, the the male uh, lead winds up uh, helping to fix or reform the, the female lead. Uh, but there's sort of a, uh, as you suggested, there's a fast-paced, uh, dialogue-driven uh, comedy with a sort of a sophisticated sexiness to it, and also almost always some sort of class commentary. And so the, I guess the, the film that epitomizes all of those things is, except it's the, the man who sort of, uh, reforms the woman is My Man Godfrey, directed by, uh, Gregory Lecava with Carol Lombard and William Powell. Uh, she, as part of a scavenger hut, she's a, a rich daffy heiress and, uh, she, uh, picks uh, William Powell uh, out of, uh, a long line of forgotten men, uh, in the depression and makes, uh, him, her butler, as part of a scavenger hunt. And it turns out that there is um, more 
to Godfrey then meets the eye. And uh, there's a delightful family dynamic. Often the, the crazy rich family is, is a big part of a screwball comedy. So uh, this is sort of the, the one that I think most clearly hits the, the class notes that are sometimes big, sometimes small, but always present in, in one of those films. Yeah, um, I, I guess sort of the ancestor of screwball comedy is Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, right? Which is very much repartee-driven. It's, um, uh, as, as they call it, a sex comedy without the sex, in that it's about sexual tension, but you never necessarily say it. You just assume it, because uh, the woman is someone like, oh, I don't know, um, uh, Carole Lombard or Claudette Colbert. And so, obviously, there's got to be sexual tension happening. For example... In uh, the classic uh, Bringing Up Baby, in which if you've never thought of Catherine Hepburn as a romantic target, you will now, because uh, she is amazing in Bringing Up Baby. This may be my favorite Hepburn film, uh, much less uh, my favorite, one of my favorite screwball comedies, but it's absolutely, Cary Grant is simultaneously still Cary Grant, but not Cary Grant in that he's a nebbish, and Catherine Hepburn is a spoiled rich girl who does anything she wants. And that is what drives the story. And eventually she discovers that what she wants is Carrie Grant. And that is the, that that's the, that's the story right there. He's a, yes. she a simple, rescues him from uh, he's a paleontologist, right? He's a simple paleontologist. She, she rescues him from a marriage to a, uh, an even more uptight uh, taskmaster uh, uh, fiance. And of course there's a leopard. Uh, who is the, the titular baby right. is a leopard. And it's uh, this is one of the sort of the three cornerstone screwball comedies directed by Howard Hawks. Another of them also has Cary Grant in it. That's His Girl Friday, which is written by Chicago's own Ben Hecht. Ben Hecht. And uh, this is a, a gender flipped version of his play, The Front Page. In uh, uh, the original version, it's just about an editor uh, holding on to the star reporter that wants to get away from him. But in uh, Hawks's version, there is a past romantic relationship between Grant and Rosalind Russell as a star reporter who's uh, they're covering a big uh, crime story. And again, there's always a, there's almost always a, a stiff uh, fiance, in this case, played by Ralph Bellamy, who made a career uh, playing the the guy you didn't want the uh, leading lady to end up with. It's the Baxter, as it is known now. Yeah. This in particular has super rattle trap fast dialogue. So if yeah. you watch the 1930s version of uh, the front page, the it's it's okay, but it's not sort of perfectly timed and fast and and uh, on its feet the way that uh, His Girl Friday is. A challenge with His Girl Friday is it's in the public domain, so you might have to hunt around a bit to find a decent print of it. Right. So there must be probably... I, I'm betting without looking that there's four or five different versions of it on Amazon Prime, and you might mm -hmm. have to keep trying them until you get... It might be on YouTube, for example. Yeah. And uh, the front page, the movie of the film or the movie of the play, rather, held the record for the fastest dialogue, and Howard Hawks would do his dailies against the equivalent scene in the front page, and if they weren't fast enough, he would reshoot the scene and say, everyone talk louder and faster! And that... <laughs> And that was the sort of uh, driving energy that makes His Girl Friday almost, uh, you know, a, a, a manic symphony. Uh, it, it approaches Bugs Bunny cartoon levels of uh, jam packery. Yes. Famously, when method acting came in, Hawk said, I've been spending 20 years telling them not to act. And now I'm going to have to tell them all over again. Uh, <laughs> his third great screwball comedy is Ball of Fire uh, with uh, Gary Cooper. Again, uh, he uh, cast against type as a, a nebbishy linguist who uh, decides to uh, go slumming in order to uh, research his uh, slang dictionary and uh, meets Queen of the Nightclub uh, again, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. And there, he has sort of a, a, a coterie of even nerdier uh, other academics uh, with him. And again, it's the classic form. So there's a class difference and there's uh, the, uh, the uptight uh, squares uh, being reformed uh, by the uh, fun-loving uh, troublemakers. Even in 1934, when a trope came along, someone wanted to nerd trope it. And so the good people at, what was it, MGM, I guess? Yeah. Bought the rights to The Thin Man, which was a uh, mystery novel by Dashiell Hammett. 
and cast uh, Myrna Loy as Nora Charles and William Powell as Nick Charles and made the sequel to the screwball comedy in which the millionaire-ess uh, marries a private detective as a detective story. And so uh, Nick and Nora Charles are happily married. He's uh, gladly given up detectiving because he's married a millionaire and, and won the lottery. But then a crime comes along and he has to solve the crime of the thin man. And uh, Nora doesn't want to be shut out and follows along. And it is a magnificent screwball comedy that also has a perfectly serviceable detective story in it. And I think that the sequels by and large can't possibly live up to the film. I think the uh, easily the worst of them is uh shadow of the thin man, but I think after the thin man is pretty good. So if you're looking uh, for something more than love in this, uh, in this genre, I recommend the thin man and maybe even after the thin man. Yes. Never have you seen a glorification of alcoholism, uh, then in the Thin <laughs> yes, Man movies. Yeah. Yes, if you haven't seen it and you watch it, you really, yeah, of course, Ken recommended this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and yes, you can see near the end when they get into the 40s, it's like, let's domesticate these characters and it's not uh, nearly so good. And to uh, call back to our first segment, if you want to do uh, uh, Nick and Nora Charles with the uh, serial numbers filed off for one to one, one to one. Or, or something like it, right? You would do, because yeah. uh, it's a duo, you would want to find a solo character. But uh, mysteries set in a screwball comedy world, uh, I think, uh, might be exactly uh, what we uh, need right now. Yeah, I think you could you could probably do something with the uh, Dying Earth clever tags rule, where you've got the screwball comedy, but you get clues not just by using pushes or whatever, but also by doing clever dialogue. Uh, Yeah, when you get a problem card, the the way to discard it would be to engage in uh, witty repartee. Make the GM laugh to get the problem card. And again, if you're playing it with your own uh, Nora to your Nick, uh, making each other laugh should be the point of your life anyway. So why not put it in the game? You can't talk about screwball comedy without talking about Preston Sturgis, uh, the the master of dialogue-driven comedy. Not all of his great uh, films and all but the last one of them, uh, which is an attempt to revive the career of Harold Lloyd, are worth seeing. Uh, but the ones that are screwball comedies are The Palm Beach Story, in which uh, Claudia Kilbert uh, decides to uh, uh, leave her husband behind because she's a drag on uh, the household finances. And so she uh, uh, goes on a trip and the husband pursues her. And uh, there are uh, uh, kooky hunters and uh, eccentric rich guys. And it's just a, a great getting your partner back a farce. And then the Lady Eve, uh, also with Barbara Stanwyck, and in this case, Henry Fonda, is the uh, square who uh, meets uh, her on a cruise. She is a seasoned con artist. Her dad is played by uh, Charles Coburn, uh, a great figure from this period from comedies. And again, it's a uh, squares meet the hipsters, uh, opposites attract screwball comedy, again, with uh, glamour and, uh, yep. and romance. So all of these are things... Uh, that uh, you can take uh, solace in uh, when you need uh, something to uh, brighten up a, a difficult time. Yeah, and I will uh, close this out with a with an actual serious appreciation of What's Up, Doc, which was made, as you said, by Peter Bogdanovich. It's from 1972. It stars Ryan O'Neill and uh, Barbara Streisand. And if you are mystified because you are a younger uh, person as to why Barbara Streisand Watch What's Up, Doc. You will get some idea of why Barbara Streisand. She is terrific in it. Uh, she is exactly as ridiculous in 1972 as uh, Carol Lombard was in 1940. Uh, Bogdanovich has, uh, at, at that point, managed to sort of channel uh, some degree of the directing skill. It's it's a slower film, certainly, than The Front Page or uh, uh, His Girl Friday, but it's still insane and it is insane in a good way and of course with a name like what's up doc he is very alive to the fact that the true heirs of screwball comedy were bugs and daffy not any of the uh romantic uh comedies in the 1950s oh and before we go i I should just name one more film the awful truth uh which shares a star from the thin man uh series which is skippy who played asta the terrier in thin man Ah. he's also in the awful truth uh he may be my favorite cinematic dog uh, the Awful Truth has Cary Grant again and Irene Dunn as a couple who, uh, in an early use of uh, what later became a very, very overused trope, uh, find out they're not legally married and decide, uh, since they're a little peeved with each other, that uh, they're going to take advantage of not being married. But, of course, love and Skippy 
uh, bring them back together. And on that note, it's time for us to seek out our final hut, which uh, lies, I think, uh, I think we're going to have to part the weeds of this commercial. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once again to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the hut that I thought might have been the uh, consulting cultist, but turned out to be a Liptony hut uh, once I did more research on it, as often happens. So the uh, Nordic alien and the gray alien, they were here last week. They're here again because they, uh, like uh, revered uh, Patreon backer Shinonoki, want to know about the Takanushi documents. And... uh Ken, this has all manner of uh, elliptonic pattern in it, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a thing, uh, I think we would have to say. The Takanuchi documents are the basis of a new religion, as they are called, or cult, if you're being mean, in uh, Japan. And the basic story of them is that they are the secret messages of Jesus, who... Uh, after faking his death, uh, his brother Izukiri died on the cross, and he faked his death and moved to Japan and taught timeless wisdom in the valley of uh, Shingo, the, the little village of Shingo. And uh, his documents were uh, passed down by uh, generations of devotees and and uh, and worshippers and were destroyed in World War II, sadly, so you can't examine them. But replicas have been made maybe by the guy who founded the religion, uh, Kiyomaro Takanuchi. And uh, Takanuchi is the guy uh, after whom the Takanuchi documents are named by people who don't want to name them, I think, the Shingo documents. Robin, is that uh, basically what you've uh, come up with? Well, it, it does seem unclear, based on various press reports in uh, English, uh, whether Kiyomaro Takanuchi in fact, created these documents, or a later uh, figure, a cosmo-archaeologist named uh, Wado Kosaka is, in fact, the author of them. He was certainly the promoter of the documents. Now, extending the uh, story of Jesus to another uh, place is precedented, as we say. Yes, is very precedented. If you like Jesus, but figure that he doesn't have a local connection, uh, you create your set of documents that do this. So there's all sorts of lore surrounding where exactly these documents came from and what their provenance is. Supposedly, uh, they were originally 1,500 years old, and then uh, they were uh, restored in the 1880s by persons unknown, and then in the 30s, uh, Takanushi rediscovers them just in time for them to be uh, destroyed uh, in the war and then uh, recreated by uh, Wado Kasako. Um, the uh, mythology, as uh, often does when you're doing the further adventures of uh, Jesus Christ, situates the missing years in Japan up to the age of 21. Uh, he's, uh, he's in Palestine. Then he goes to Japan. Easy enough trip in those days. And then he goes back to become the, the, the preacher of the Christian gospel. Izukuri, a uh, good Hebrew name there. Yeah. Seems right. very cooperative in uh, deciding to climb up on the cross and, and take one for the team. 
And there isn't really a cult today. It's not even necessarily no. clear whether there ever were numerous adherents. Uh, there certainly is a village that preserves this mound with a fence around it and a cross sticking out of it, and an adjacent mound, which supposedly contains Izukuri's ear and uh, some of the Virgin Mary's hair. Mm-hmm. And they do proclaim it their most important tourist destination uh, because it's a little well, village. If you've got the tomb of Christ, that's a pretty important tourist destination. Exactly, yeah. According to the story, uh, Jesus becomes a, a rice farmer and gets married has three daughters, lives to the age of 106. Uh, so it's a pretty happy ending to the story. Yeah. I mean, if you get to pick, I, I would I would say, and you're not invested in the story coming out the other way, that seems nice. The fact that there's pretty much, I, I think it's more interesting to, to wonder at what point did the legend happen and did the legend create the sort of quote unquote documents or did the documents create the legend, right? I mean, was there always a sort of a local tradition that, uh, oh yeah, Jesus is buried here. I mean, you'll hear that in, in Pakistan. You'll hear that in a lot of other places. Oh yeah, Jesus, uh, he's buried here. I mean, they had to make one up in England for gosh sakes. And they're Christian. Then uh, they were like, oh yeah, Arimathea, whatever. But Joseph Arimathea was actually from Wales and you can see his house over there. And, uh, and so you have a lot of, a lot of that sort of tradition. I'm wondering if, if that tradition was uh, briefly created during the, the hundred years or so of Christian uh, evangelism in Japan, and then had to be kept on the down low when the uh, shoguns were killing all the Christians, and then popped back up? Or was it just that uh, our friend uh, Takeuchi sort of just decided to make something up and, hey, there's a hill nearby. Let's pretend it's a mound. Well, there, uh, there is a, some it is saidism going on in, in yeah, that there's it a is lot said of, that is villagers said. Uh, look a little less Japanese than other Japanese people and that some of the uh, customs they practice can be roughly uh, compared to Christian traditions. For example, there's a ash on the forehead local tradition. But I think that that's kind of thin beer. And when you look at excerpts of the uh, Takanushi documents as they have come down to us and are available in English on Amazon, or if you do a Google book search, <laughs> it's a fairly typical uh, literary crazy talk. Right. Yeah. So I'm, my money would be on our good old Cosmo archaeologist having, uh, having come up with it. Because when you look at it, it's got your, it's got your Atlantis. It's got your UFOs. Uh, the UFOs are vehicles for uh, deities to descend from the heavens. It's got your sort of uh, text style uh, babbling on about uh, different deities and mythologies and their interactions. And none of it is all that interesting. And obviously it was written in a storm of uh, inspired nonsense. So if, if I had to bet, I would say the uh, the latest possible person who would be responsible for that text is the one who is responsible. Um, and he was famous uh, also for... Uh, contacting UFOs in on live television. In yeah, the he 1970s. would go on TV and do it. Yeah, yeah. Which again, uh, because we just have the English accounts, uh, is annoyingly threadbare in its description of exactly what that is. And uh, I think it probably would have been bigger news if by contacting UFOs, if they'd contacted him back. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. might have made international headlines in the early seventies. That, that, that I think is the is the real sort of rubber meets the road. Uh, it's like the old, um, uh, yeah, you know, call up demons all you want, but do they show up? <laughs> um, and, and this is a sort of, I guess, you know, in a way, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, basically, this is just, uh, Mormonism, but in Japan, right? I mean, you've got a guy, there's local mounds. He's, uh, a student of the odd and the arcane and has a vision and says, well, look at that. And in 1820, it wasn't UFOs. It was just regular old angels. But the sort of the, the, the model is, is still there. And so that leads you to wonder, are ultra terrestrials up to stuff? And we all know about the ultra terrestrials. They like to show up in groups of three, like the wise men or the men in black or, or, uh, the tramps on the, on the uh, grassy knoll. Um, they very much engage us through our own legends and myths. So, I think that we are looking at the spoor 
of an ultra-terrestrial op, just as we were in the burned-over district there in New York in the 1820s and 30s, when our boy uh, uh, Joseph Smith is up to stuff, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a similar mythological pattern, the difference, of course, being that there's no equivalent of the LDS in this. Right. Uh, there isn't a, a sizable religion that springs up around it, but rather uh, just a local tourist industry. Um, right. But as you suggest, yeah, that the... Uh, it suggests that there's some sort of extra or ultra terrestrial activity going on there, that this is the misunderstood manifestation of it, that although uh, the uh, nonsense in the actual documents is nonsense, that it covers up or reflects uh, some sort of uh, local uh, oddness going on, and that the two mounds uh, have acquired some sort of numinous power, if only, uh, you know, sort of as as Tulpa Feng Shui sites that uh, they uh, didn't originally have any particular uh, resonance to them, but they do now because uh, not even they haven't even been really receiving uh, worship, but they've been receiving attention and focus. And so absolutely uh, there might be some uh, energy there. And indeed, if you uh, go there and something weird is happening, uh, that could be the initial surface weirdness that suggests that uh, there's something deeper going on. Uh, that uh, uh, must be a current da- danger for the investigators to uh, to somehow deal with, because uh, again, having a colorful uh, tourist attraction is is not a threat to anyone. But uh, uh, maybe that's a sign that uh, you know lizard people or whoever are coming off and uh, siphoning off the energy of those places, and uh, and they're causing the real trouble. Right. That it's that it's a it's like the the, the bumps on your arm somewhere beneath there. Maybe there's measles or maybe it's just an um, insect bite. We don't know. Ultra terrestrial mosquitoes have, have shown up and, and, and left mounds uh, sticking up out of the Earth's uh, allergic skin. Right. Uh, well, on that note, I think the uh, Earth is going to go and put on some lanocaine, which is our cue to uh, bid everyone farewell for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from marrying Ralph Bellamy by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Scott Stefanski. James Stewart. Jason Franzella. Tom Abella. And Andrea. Coletta. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag our top selling design, Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>